This episode is brought to you by GovX, and as you know, I only have companies on here that I truly use and believe in myself, and GovX is a complete no-brainer. If you are a member of fire, police, EMS, corrections, military, and even hospital setting doctors and nurses, you qualify for the free membership to GovX, which marries us with discounts from so many companies that you probably already use. And on top of that, it's not just for active duty, but also retirees, veterans, and volunteers. So for our professions, having to purchase so much of our equipment, every single dollar counts. And understanding that, GovX has reached out to you, the Behind the Shield podcast audience, to offer you an additional saving. On your first purchase of $50 or more, if you use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, they will give you an additional $15 off your first purchase. And another layer of GovX is GovX Gives Back. Every month they're going to sell a different patch and the proceeds from that patch goes to a charity that supports either first responders or military. So as I mentioned before, go to GovX.com, G-O-V-X.com, register for your free membership and save every single time you purchase. This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for around 14 years now and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience, a 15% discount, not on one purchase, but continuously. And I'll give you that code in just a moment. But I want to do a product showcase on their new Atlas sneakers and boots. So I'm a big believer in the fact that footwear can either improve our health or break down our health. And the Atlas sneaker actually has a new foam system that disperses the body weight, whether just the body weight, whether it's a a vest and a gun, whether it's EMS bags being carried. And on top of that, they're lightweight, despite having the same protection that's required in the tactical space. So I have a pair of Atlas sneakers myself, and I can attest they're extremely comfortable. On top of footwear, of course, 511 offers a gamut of uniforms and equipment, whether it's plate carriers, backpacks, flashlights, you name it, they have it. All you have to do is go to 511tactical.com and use the code SHIELD15. That's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 511tactical.com and you will save every time you purchase. And to learn more about the company 511 Tactical, You can listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO, Francisco Morales. Welcome, guys, to episode 406 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute pleasure to welcome on the show Todd Robinson. Now, we discuss a host of topics from Todd's most recent film, which he directed, The Last Full Measure, his experience with Save a Warrior, an organization that you've heard on this podcast several times before, where he found himself immersed with military and first responders trying to overcome their trauma and his experience as a civilian in that world. The incredibly powerful stories that came from the cast in The Last Full Measure, his experience working in Hollywood, and so much more. Before we get to that interview, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, I truly read your feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you share these incredible men and women stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Todd Robinson. Enjoy.
So Todd, I want to start by saying thank you so much for a very short notice as well, coming on the Behind the Shield podcast. Oh, I'm so happy to be here, James. My pleasure. I'm looking forward to this conversation. I want to say thank you to Travis for connecting us. Yeah, Travis is, uh, he's my man. I love Travis. I'm glad he put us together. Absolutely. And there's obviously going to be some some interesting stories of how you guys know each other and some of the organizations that you work with together. Um, very, very first question. Where on planet Earth are we finding you today? You're finding me in my man cave, also known as my office, uh, in Malibu, California. All right. Well, as, as an initial side tangent, how are you guys doing as far as the fires? Were you okay with the, the recent ones that you had through there? Uh, recently, the the recent fires we were spared. Um, I've been through lots of them. Um, my I lost about a third of my house in 2007, uh, and have you know the it's it's a tricky business in Malibu because we have these wind driven uh, wildland fires. In fact, our our wind this wind event that we have called the Santa Anas is about to kick up in the next couple of days. So. It's always a little edgy here, um, but we in uh, two years ago, uh, the Woolsey fire, we we lost, I think, over 600 houses in Malibu, and a lot of them were out on the on the point, which there's the you know Pacific Coast Highway sort of runs north south or really east west, and there's this big bump that sticks out, and you'll recognize it because that's where um, uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s house is from all the Iron Man movies. That point that they they plopped his house on is you know it's a CG house, but um, but that's the point. And and there are lots of very affluent people there, and nobody thought that the fire would ever jump the highway. And it got in there, and there are these arroyos, uh, uh, kind of like big big deep stream beds that can be 15 feet deep, and they were all f- full of bushes. And those bushes caught and it just ran through the backyards of hundreds of homes and burned uphill, of course, and fire burns uphill much quicker than it does down and people didn't have a chance. And so we lost many, many houses. Yeah, it's so sad. It's it's interesting because I was visiting uh, Josh Brolin, um, who I was very, very lucky to get to write the forward of the book that I just showed you too. But um, he... You know, his house was spared. He was one of the lucky ones. But when we went to to visit, he showed me some of the the bare slabs on the same street that he's on. And I know Darren O'Lean, um, who was on the show as well, he lost his completely. So I mean, it was it was crazy how some of the houses were standing and some were completely decimated on the very same road. Yeah, a fire is so uh, sort of existentially unpredictable that way. Um, yeah, it's it's crazy, and it's uh, it's not it's not for the amateur or the faint of heart. And, um, you know, when you need the services of a firefighter or for that matter, a police officer, and you get it, uh, I can't think of any gratitude that I feel that is deeper for anybody. When those guys show up and they're standing in your driveway, you know, the feelings of, of, of love and appreciation that you have for these guys, um, is just, you just can't even, sort of fathom those feelings. And so um, we have to rely on them constantly here every single year now. And so, um, you know, they're the good guys. Yeah. Well, I'm very proud of the profession, i got to say. But what's beautiful about what you've done with a lot of your work is actually highlight some of the the stories of the uh, incredible courage of men and women, whether it's, you know, the, the first responder community or, or the military. So I'm looking forward to kind of unwrapping that. 
Um, I'd love to start at the very beginning chronologically, and there'll be a tangent to this in a moment of how law enforcement ties with your family. So um, tell me where you were born and then what your parents did and how many siblings. Well, I was born in uh, in suburban Philadelphia, a town called Media, uh, or at least that's where I spent most of my childhood. Uh, and it's the uh, it's the county capital for Delaware County. And it's a bedroom community outside of Philadelphia, and I have very fond memories there. In fact, the older I get, the more uh, sentimental I get about it. <clears throat> and uh, my dad was an architect who studied with um, Lou Kahn at the University of Pennsylvania, among others. Um, he, I think he did a summer at Taliesin with Frank Lloyd Wright as well. And so my dad was always down in the basement drawing lines. And when I was a kid, I, I would, would go and visit job sites with him. So a lot of my fond, fondest memories with my dad are <clears throat> kicking through, uh, you know, half-built houses. And that was always a great adventure, picking up nails and, you know, trying not to fall through holes in the floor. And my mom uh, was a, 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 just a, a housekeeper, a mother, uh, until I got into about junior high school, my sister and I, and my, I have one sibling who's a sister named Tracy. And, um, she decided that, um, she wanted to go back and complete her education and ended up getting a master's in education and became the Dean of a local Catholic university. And, um, so yeah, so my childhood was pretty idyllic. You know, I, my, in the summertime, they'd, they'd kick me out and say dinner's at six <laughs> You know, and I, we'd be gone until six, you know, usually with our dogs and trail. And it was a very, um, sort of rural upbringing and, um, very different from a life in California. Yeah. Especially at the moment. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, well, okay. Well, the interesting kind of fact that I learned when I was researching you, I know you did the, uh, the film, um, Lonely Hearts and you, it mentioned in there that, um, it was based the the police role that John Travolta was in as she was on the show as well. Um, that was based on your grandfather who worked that case. So I'd love to hear about you know your your experience with your granddad, and then we can just kind of expand out into that story because it's one that a lot of people don't realize, or excuse me, don't know about. I would think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so there's a interesting thing that is a storyteller and it's just somebody who's, you know, tried to unscrew myself, you know, like I, I was all wrapped up and had my own issues and, and, and have done a lot of therapy over the years, um, <clears throat> which benefits my writing as well. So I continue to do it. And one of the things that was, uh, sort of had this, um, little burble in it was the patriotic thread that sort of rolled through my my house, my my family and it really started with my great grandfather who was a fisherman and was often gone for months at a time out at sea and so he he had five kids and my grandfather being one of them and so they kind of grew up without a patriarch um they 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 were sort of on their own that way they were raised by uh, my great grandmother for most of the time. And my great grandfather died very young. And so <clears throat> then there was my grandfather, uh, Elmer Robinson, who became, uh, a, a cop, uh, during world war to really, but before world war two, all the way through the 1960s. And he became, uh, ultimately a homicide detective and worked over 3000 cases, I believe by the end of his career, which is a lot of dead people. 
you know. And uh, and then there was my dad, who was an only child. And then there was me. And then there's my son, Tyler, who is now 28. And so uh, my grandfather was this very remote, cut off, silent, brooding man. But he was an amazing carpenter. He had incredible skills. And he had this these stories in him. And every once in a while, he would start to talk. And when he talked, you, you were just spellbound by these stories. And one of them was the story of the Lonely Hearts killers, um, Ray Fernandez and Martha Beck. And that story was essentially about a folio de, what they call a folio de, which is a psychological condition that describes um, how two people separately would probably not be capable of the crimes that their combined pathology um, creates, or it sort of creates the psychological conditioning for them to be able to perpetrate these terrible crimes. And what they did was um, they uh, perpetrated uh, theft and murder against women who were largely war widows, um, women who had lost their husbands in the war, were generally older, and he was sort of a dashing guy. Uh, Ray and um, and they they traveled as uh, brother and sister, but they were of course lovers. And um, he would bilk these women, uh, you know, trading romance for for their money, and he would ultimately embezzle their money away. And there came a point where they started to murder them because Martha became uncontrollably jealous, and that became sort of this strange way of her um, controlling him. And so my grandfather, uh, one of the murders uh, took place in Valley Stream, which was right where he was stationed, which was Mineola, a town or two over. And um, yeah, they worked that case for quite a while. And eventually, he f- th- the problem that uh, Long Island had or New York had is that they didn't have a body. They had a missing person. And he ultimately, along with his partner, Charlie Hildebrandt, played by James Gandolfini, figured out where the body was and that this was pre-Miranda and they were actually actually captured in uh, Michigan. And so they went there and got uh, permission to interrogate them and got them to admit to the murder without revealing the placement of the body. But of course, they already had it. So once they got the uh, the confession, then uh, they were able to extradite them back to New York. Uh, it was one of those quote unquote trials of the century, very salacious uh, and uh, well followed in the yellow uh, journalism of the time. And ultimately he witnessed their their executions. They were both electrocuted at Sing Sing Prison on the same day. And that event really changed him. And so the I, I'm going on and on about this, but the, what the movie was really about I mean, that's the true crime element of it. But what the movie was really about was my grandmother's own feelings of isolation, my grandfather's PTSD, which he suffered from this life, uh, you know, on the job as a cop, Um, my dad's isolation, um, my my not great communication with my dad. And then there was my son sort of at the end of the at the end of the daisy chain. And I didn't I wanted to heal this before. I perpetrated the sins of the father upon my, my own child. So that was really the, the personal exercise of telling the story and using the story to explore those themes. 
It's incredible. Now, you, you talked about having therapy and being screwed up, and one of the organizations that you are very closely aligned with is Save a Warrior. And Jake Clark, I think, was one of the first people that opened my eyes to the impact of childhood trauma on the uniform professions. Um, with that, you know, like you said, that a kind of um, domino effect of the PTSD from, you know, your, your grandfather, even your great grandfather forward to you. When you look back, were there traumatic events in your childhood that you kind of can pinpoint? Yes, 100%. Um, I, I would say, um, you know, it's I'm, I'm always a, a little bit uncomfortable talking about um, uh, my childhood trauma because compared to what a lot of people have been through, especially people that I've been through with my own co- cohort at Save a Warrior, it, it almost seems a little bit silly. But I, I think that uh, trauma is um, something that is a relative experience. And you can have sexual trauma um, as a man or as a woman, as a, as a child. We see a lot of that. Um, or you could have been, you know, bullied. But the feelings of, of, of fear and uh, being less than are the same. And so when we get to suicidal ideation and, and, um, and, uh, y- you know, self-harm, those kind of behaviors, um, I don't really think it matters whether you're, um, w- you know, w- what the level of that is. Of course, we want to prevent, you know, sexual trauma, for example, at all costs if we can, but the healing process is really the same. And the feelings I think are, of betrayal, uh, those kind of things are, you know, probably they feel the same. They feel as big and as overwhelming. So, um, so Jake always talks about the thing beneath the thing. And, you know, as a, as a, uh, I'm going to go into the, the, the weeds a little bit here for a second, but you know, we, we, there's a, a man, I've got his book right over here named Joseph Campbell, who wrote, uh, hero with a thousand faces. And, among other books. And he, uh, he taught at Sarah Lawrence university and he was, uh, the, the mythology expert, um, professor, if you will, that George Lucas went to, uh, when he was trying to concoct, uh, the star Wars saga. And, uh, and so this is when at least, um, I became aware of what's called the hero's journey, which tends to deal more with the male experience than the female experience. And I can explain that in a minute, but, but it it has to do with refusal, initiation, return with treasure or return with knowledge to society. And we used to do, we used to do have initiation rites for our young men. And it usually happened about the time uh, you were going through adolescence and you were separated from the women in the indigenous culture, as it were, and taken out into the outback and, um, and put through trials. And suffice it to say, when you came back and you left your, your mother's son, but you returned your father's son, uh, understanding accountability, how to be accountable and how to be accountable to others. And this is all at the heart of what Jake puts traumatized people through. And I'm sitting there uh, amongst uh, a bunch of warriors and firefighters and cops, you know, feeling completely like a fraud because here I am this like pussy freaking, you know, screenwriter, (laughs) you know, director guy, Hollywood guy, soft as they come. And yet 
it immediately became clear that out of nothing else but respect, I had to get vulnerable and tell my story as well. And so, but I thought this hero's journey thing was just like a template for writing movies. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a little dumb, you know, (laughs) what it really is, is it's, it's a way to analyze mythology and the commonalities in, in mythology, whether they be, you know, from different cultures or from different time periods. I mean, it goes all the way back to Aristotle and, and so now I'm looking at this, I'm like, why is this like ex army jock FBI guy telling me about storytelling? Because what Jake was doing with that was using it as a tool for you to analyze and define your story and, and realize every time you feel like you feel yourself resisting, um, uh, that what you're doing is you're at that moment where you're refusing the call. And we have to get past the refusal in order to enter the great adventure that we call life. And most of us get stopped there. And, um, and so I just became fascinated by it. And then I saw the outcome, uh, from, uh, from his process, which is a, a four day process. And, you know, we, I eventually became a board member and, um, and I currently sit on the board and we have put over, I think 1200 people, maybe more now through the program over six years, almost seven years. And now we're doubling and tripling. We're, we're growing exponentially now. Um, and, uh, I think we've only lost two guys, two people to suicide that came. And so it's a very powerful tonic, um, that is service-based and, uh, and just amazing. And so, now I've taken all that and I'm reapplying it to my work um, so that I can better understand myself and better understand uh, why it is that I'm choosing the subjects that I'm choosing um, and, and so that I can be authentic in, in the, the storytelling. Well, it was funny that you mentioned about um, the sliding scale of trauma because that's something that's come up a lot here. I mean, I've had everyone from, you know, um, Sierra Leone boy soldiers whose families were murdered, you know, and he, he was forced to become a boy soldier through to a friend of mine who was the middle child. And that was basically his trauma that, you know, the first was, was loved by the family and then they wanted a little girl and they had him. And so they had a little girl the third time and she was loved, you know, and he felt like he was just never got the affection of his family. But as you said, it's, it's, it doesn't matter what the label is. There's a lot of comparison, I think, in my profession. Like, oh, I wasn't at 9-11, so therefore I don't have the right to feel like this. Well, you know, you're working shift work. You're still seeing horrible stuff through your career. Absolutely, you have permission to feel that way. And the people around you that you think are doing are doing well, they're probably not doing well either. That's right. And And Jake always talks about this. I was just sharing this with a friend of mine last night. You know, he always says, be willing to not be special, be willing to be ordinary. And, and so you go, what does that mean? Well, special doesn't mean you think you're better than necessarily. What special means is you think that you're unique in your suffering. And the fact is that if you listen to Brene Brown, for example, and I I recommend everybody go to YouTube and look her up and listen to her, especially her first two uh, Ted talks. And she explains this. And it's, uh, vulnerability is, is the path to sort of, um, confessing the, the story that you've been telling yourself over and over and over again, which isn't necessarily true. And what we really need to get to is the thing beneath the thing. So for example, if you want to take, uh, firefighters and EMTs, for example, 
you know, uh, you, you wake up in the morning, you're feeling good. You work out, you go to the firehouse, uh, you know, the bell rings, you know, you jump in an ambulance and you're literally holding a child's head, you know, splattered in your hands, you know, and that is a traumatic event, but that is not the thing as, as awful as that can be. And, and that can create post-traumatic stress, those kind of events, but it's not what we call um, complex PTS or PTSD. Complex PTSD has the added component of the, that thing beneath the thing, that initial childhood trauma. And that can probably answer the question, if you look at it carefully, why you became a firefighter or a cop or a soldier or whatever to begin with, because it was probably an effort to overcome something else. And, um, and so Jake is very good at creating a, a safe space, safe conditions where we all can in a cohort of 12 men or 12 women, um, c come to terms with these things and, and realize that it's not the war stories that are your problem. In fact, we're not, you're not allowed to tell the war stories unless it's really, really, you know, directly related to something, you know, he has an exercise where he says, um, you, you, you have six minutes to tell us everything that is significant that has happened to you in your life up until the time that you, you know, entered your career field At, but no war stories. That's where it stops. You got six minutes go. Well, if you're given only six minutes, you tend to be pretty efficient about getting to the shit, if you will. And, um, and I, I mean, I can't believe how amazing these men are um, that uh, that just crack open instantly because they've agreed to the terms. I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm going to tell you guys. And once you hear the first guy say that he was, you know, molested and raped by his uncle because he was a latchkey kid from the time he was eight to 14, almost every day of his life and never told his parents because he was afraid they would uh, tr blame themselves and held on to it and has never told his wife, um, you know, all of a sudden my little problems, yeah, I'm in, <laughs> you know, when I see you talk about courage, you know, and, and there's this thing that, that, that I'm sure, you, you know, you've heard this over and over, but you know, we, we are still suffering from our collective guilt over the Vietnam war. And part of the, um, the consequences of that are that now everybody is very careful to, to thank our, our veterans, you know, especially when they return from overseas. So you hear, thank you for your service over and over again. But if you're someone who has childhood trauma or for that matter, matter, combat trauma, and who knows what it is. Uh, I was standing here and I moved three inches and my friend stood there and he got killed. I should have been standing in that spot. I don't know why I moved, but I did and bang, a sniper got him instead of me or, you know, all kinds of terrible things that can happen. Um, or, or maybe it's a mistake that you made or think that you made. Uh, in fact, in, uh, in, in the last full measure, which we'll talk about Sam Jackson's character, um, believes, and this was a real story from a real guy who thinks that he inverted the lensetic compass heading from degrees, uh, degrees of the compass, uh, from, um, uh, millimeters, uh, in terms of distance or range. And, uh, and he believed till the day he died that he was responsible for killing his own men in friendly fire. That's the story he told his whole life. 
but all of the vets that were with him, none of them believed that. They said, look, we know that Marty believes that, but there were, you know, 150 foot hardwood trees above us poking through this triple canopy jungle and the shells were hitting that and exploding above us. That's what happened. So, but Marty suffered with that his whole life because he didn't have someone who could create the space to shed him of that guilt. So when you go up to a veteran or a police officer or firefighter and you say, thank you for your service, what they're unconsciously thinking is if you knew who I really was, if you knew who I think I really am, you would not be thanking me. You would be disconnecting from me socially. You'd be backing away from me. And Brene Brown says we're wired for struggle and connection as human beings. We're born with that. And so we need to struggle to connect um, and, and not disconnect. Vulnerability makes, makes it so much easier to, to connect. And so getting back to this idea of, uh, of, of feeling special, I feel special because nobody could understand my pain. Nobody knows what I've seen. Nobody knows what I did. If you did, you would under, then maybe you'd understand. But I'm not telling you because I'll be an outcast. I'll be a pariah. I'll be viewed as a pariah because that's the way that I view myself. And so, or, you know, you go back to the childhood trauma and it's even worse because now you're, you're thinking, well, I had a sexual experience uh, with someone who, uh, uh, you know, sexually molested me, but I had an orgasm and the orgasm felt good. Does that mean that it was my fault? You know, so there, it's just all sort of mangled up and mashed up. Uh, and and you, you take something like that and then, you know, interconnect it with, um, you know, son of a sort of, um, what am I trying to say? Sort of compensating motivation to go do a service job, realizing what you're really trying to do is numb yourself. Or if if people only viewed me as a movie star or as a, you know, we, we, we call it, uh, it's, it's a, uh, it's a term of art called, um, uh, from, um, not Freud, but, um, Carl Jung, uh, and it's called, uh, um, athlete warrior, uh, service, uh, spirit. There are four aspects of, of transition through life. And the athlete warrior is where we start in adolescence and we're all about looking good. Yeah, we're working on those weights. We're looking good. We want to be hot for the girls, all that. And then that sort of rolls into acquisition of stuff and status. Do I have the right car? Do I have the right woman? Do I have the right house? Do I have the right job? Do I have the right clothes? And most men or many men, their development is arrested right there because to move further than that means you have to find humility and you have to be initiated and initiation uh, in, in Jay Clark's terms can only happen, uh, by other initiated men or women. Um, although as I mentioned, it's a little different for women. And so at that point you can get into service, service greater than self, which is the tonic that will save you. And that's what we find out in Save a Warrior, where after, you know, four or five days with this cohort of men, and you now know things that the people closest to them do not know in their lives. And I know that you've got an alcohol problem and you've decided that you're going to go to AA. I'm going to call you up three times a week and I'm going to be your pal. And I'm going to say, have you gone? Did you go this week? Did you go today? What can I do? Can I drive you? That's, that's a being accountable, you know, to someone else that's service 
greater than self. So when you're suffering, what's the best thing you can do? Go do something for somebody else. The world would be a lot nicer place. And then, and, and it, it also, so this happens in our forties, maybe, maybe fifties. We start to get into that area. I teach now. I, I never used to teach. I teach at uh, the university of Southern California, not for the money, but because I want to give back to my community a little bit. And then finally it's, it's the realm of the spirit as you're, you know, and entering the twilight of your life, you're, you're preparing yourself, you're, you're taking stock. Are my kids okay? Did I do the right thing? Have I healed my relationships? Um, have I tithed properly in, in, in financially, spiritually, whatever, and, and, and preparing myself to, to leave this place, hopefully better than I found it. And that's a complete cycle. And this is all sort of what Jake has, uh, pulled together from many, many, many different sources. And, um, it's really, a, it's been, a, a, a truly one of the joys of my life, um, to become involved in it because I, I see the healing that happens. Yeah, it's it's absolutely incredible, and there's so much to unpack. Of you know that you you just talked about, but the first thing that blew me away, and it was really, really after um, my conversation with Jake, which was kind of early on in the podcast, probably about three years ago now. Um, but then, I mean, so many of the men and women that came on the show had that you know pretty significant trauma, and there were some as, as we've discussed that on a on a perceived scale may seem less traumatic, but they could all identify trauma before they came in. And it, you know, now, kind of a few years later, where I've got to talk to so many great minds, you see the commonality. You see that there's a, there's a double-edged sword to that service. One, they, they want to be the protector. There's no question about that. They they want to stop the cycle. They 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 know what it's like to be hurt and be vulnerable, and they want to you know they want to be a policeman or a soldier or a firefighter to try and try and stop that. But I think there's definitely that other side that's filling the void. It's filling, you know, it's, it's masking the vulnerability with, with a shield of some sort. So, you know, the, to see this over and over and over again, I'm just about to put a, another episode out with a, a Navy SEAL who, same thing, you know, more childhood trauma. So, you know, the commonalities that so many of these people have is, is mind blowing. And what I talk about sometimes, I ask Josh this, I think we spoke with Travis as well, is, I look to to Hollywood, and it's interesting that we're having a discussion. Obviously, you're in that arena. Um, at some of the figures that we as men have attached ourselves to as a man, a manly man, and I, and to me, that's part of that. Um, we told ourselves a story that oh, a man is Arnold Schwarzenegger, a man is you know Sylvester Stallone, John Wayne. They don't cry, they don't. They're not vulnerable. They just you know slaughter Vietnamese and, and then go home and that's it. You know? So um, what is your perception of having been through the saving, Save a Warrior experience of some of the Hollywood heroes that we've embraced and that impact on how we per, uh, perceive masculinity? That's an interesting question. <clears throat> well, I think I think, uh, you know, popular culture is a mirror that reflects back at us, uh, not always well understood at the time that these things are created. Um, but if you, uh, look back decades, uh, at, at, at films, I, I did a, a, one of the very first films I ever made was a documentary <clears throat> that tracked, um, the life of William Bonney, Billy, the kid. And, 
I, I was just sort of fascinated from a sort of romantic uh, Western point of view. I, I had read a novelization of his life and it, it had everything, you know, and I, I became really struck by it and interested. But as I went through the process of making that film, we started to analyze um, all the movies that were had been made about him as a as a character. And um, almost none of them had anything to do with the the real historical character. But as they say in uh, Liberty Valance, you know, when the legend becomes bigger than the man, you print the legend, right? And that's what Hollywood tends to be about. But in spite of that, uh, and this was just this wonderful litmus test because we went back to Johnny Mac Brown and Wallace Beery in, in I think, the, the first or second talkie. That's how far back the, the tradition uh, with Billy the Kid goes. And, <clears throat> you know, Billy was ultimately killed by his um, quote-unquote friend, Pat Garrett. And uh, in America, post-World War I, um, we couldn't take it having come out of the, the Great War. Um, but in Europe, where they, um, they had you know, been through centuries of, of wars, um, they were good with a dark ending. And so Pat Garrett kills Billy the Kid, but in the States, they change the ending and Billy rides off with the girl on his saddle and off you go. And, and so that's when we sort of knew that, wait, wait a second, this is kind of like uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls of popular culture. This is really interesting. And it was just coincidental that Billy the Kid over, I don't know, as a, as a character, I think at that time, close to 60 films had been made, plus uh, B Western fillers with Roy Rogers playing, you know, Billy the Kid. But it led all the way up to, uh, at that time, the two Young Guns movies, um, which uh, were really sort of reflecting um, a little bit of a gang mentality. I, I think, um, you know, we were having um, problems in our inner, inner cities. And John Fusco, who wrote those movies, is uh, a, a terrific screenwriter and filmmaker and a very thoughtful guy, uh, who I, I know a little bit. And, um, but the one that really hooked me was, um, was Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, uh, directed by Sam Peckinpah with Chris Christopherson and, uh, of all people, Bob Dylan, who, who did the score, you'll recall the song knocking on heaven's door. Uh, that was, uh, from the soundtrack of Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. And it's incredibly violent, uh, but in the end, what that movie was reflecting back was how the youth of America, in the form of two of our greatest pop icons at that moment, Chris Christopherson and Bob Dylan, had been betrayed by constituted authority, uh, i.e. the older generation. And when you look at the film in those terms and unpack it in those terms, you start to see the power of commercial popular culture because this stuff is happening unconsciously and subconsciously and going through the save a warrior project has served me so beautifully as a as a filmmaker and storyteller because it it, it gave me the prism to to look at these things a different way and even though i think i was always you know stumbling upon these things like that documentary i i knew a little bit about that these things existed there but Save a Warrior, when you look through it, we call it our saw goggles. You know, Jake um, will, will show some fairly you know, what we call masterwork films uh, and and breaks them down like uh, Silver Linings Playbook, for example, or um, Castaway is another one, uh, Life of Pi. 
And when you really start breaking these down and, and, and you're going through your own saw experience, you start to realize that the movie is about you. And this is why art is so powerful because we claim it, we project ourselves into it. And if we're not just numbing ourselves with it and we're actually making use of it, we come out the other side and we know something about ourselves that maybe we didn't know before. And I think that's why certain films feel so personal to people. Um, so anyway, I'm, I'm prattling on, but, uh, it's, it's all fascinating to me. And I, I was just amazed that this guy who had nothing to do with the movie business, um, you know, had the acumen and the, the, the intellectual interest to look at, at, at popular culture as a way to get people to look at themselves and realize that they're not special. And to be to be ordinary is to mean is is to mean that I do not value your pain and suffering any more than mine. Rather, I relate to you because I see myself in you, and you see yourself in me. So let's let's lock arms and and walk through this life together and help each other. Beautiful. Well, speaking of that, so tell me kind of your journey into acting and then you know making films. And, and your experience through, through your childhood trauma, like how, how did it not work? And then how did it work? Well, my dad was, I, first of all, I should just say that I loved my dad deeply and I miss him every day. He, he left too soon. Uh, very suddenly he had a, uh, an aneurysm, a brain aneurysm. I talked to him the day he died and he was just gone that night. <clears throat> but, um, but growing up, it, it was challenging. Um, and I, it, it was interesting. My, um, my mom and, and my mom, it really starts with my mom and my mom who is still living and is an amazing woman. Um, I, I love her madly as well, but, and so this is not, uh, to, um, you know, criticize their relationship. It just happens to be the way it went. And my mom was a woman of the fifties. She had married this man. She left school, college. She had gone two years in. Uh, my dad went into the Navy. Um, she had to basically take care of their home. And when he came back, um, she started having children. She had me and then she had my sister. And she really became a housewife and a, you know, a housekeeper, if you will, a parent, um, until we reached a certain age, at which point she realized that she wasn't going to be able to live the rest of her life you know, sitting around waiting for my dad to ask for lunch. You know, she, she had far too much left to give. But in those days, <clears throat> she was uh, afraid, I believe, of somehow being left or divorced. And it, today, divorce is so common, it, it, it's, it, nobody even thinks about it. But in those days, it was really a scarlet letter. And I think she feared uh, if my father were ever to leave her, uh, that she wouldn't know what to do. And so there was this unconscious contract that got made. And it ha my dad was a silence uh, and rage guy. You know, he sat on his emotions. And when he popped, he popped loud. I mean, he never hit us or anything, but he was he could be scary, you know. And so one day I'm sitting in my room working on a model rocket. Uh, at probably age 12 and I had sort of like engaged in this unconscious contract, which was don't upset your father, don't upset your father. And, and that didn't leave a whole lot of room for me. 
you know, don't upset my father. What does that mean? I can't play. I can't make noise. I can't whatever. And again, this is all unconscious. This is not conscious. It's unconscious. And, and one day I hear this thumping going on in the bedroom next to us. We lived in a very small house, probably 1200 square feet, three tiny bedrooms. And, uh, their bedroom was, I shared a common wall and it was the middle of the day. And I walked in there to find my father convulsing on the floor. Thank God he had a pillow over his face because I can't even imagine what I would have thought if I'd seen his face, but I thought he was dying. I, I had no idea what I was seeing and he was having a grand mal epileptic seizure and it turned out he was taking a nap. Turned out, I learned later that he had this condition. My mother never told us about it because he almost always had us, his seizures in his sleep. So she would be next to him. She would hold on to him to make sure he didn't roll out of bed or whatever and wait and it would pass. And they weren't even that common. He would have one, sometimes one every two years or so. But he was taking a nap and he rolled out of bed because my mother wasn't there. And I walked in on it and I was absolutely traumatized. And from that moment on, that contract with my mother about don't upset your father, because I say I, I took this on too. I, I, I was afraid that what happens if my family falls apart? What happens to me? That was terrifying to me. And I was sort of taking that on from my mom. So now I see my dad have this crazy event and my mother's trying to explain a seizure to me an epilepsy and it com completely cemented in my mind don't upset your father which meant that i stopped communicating and so i became a guy sitting on all of my frustration and anger and i would find myself you know 20 years later as a young man in los angeles um, you know, getting out of my car with a crowbar because somebody cut me off, you know, ready to get down. I got in lots of fights, lots of fist fights, um, few that I lost because I was raging. I had rage in me. And, and so you hear that story and you go, well, that doesn't sound that exciting, dude, you know, <laughs> but for me, it, it was everything. And because I had just repressed or whatever the word is, my feelings, um, deep down, uh, they never came out until I was triggered. And then I had a problem on my hand because I would go blind into blind rage. And then the second that it was over, what was the feeling that I would feel? Shame, complete and utter shame and disgust with myself because I didn't want to be that guy, but I didn't understand what was happening. So now you, you ask yourself, well, Mr. Robinson, <laughs> why did you go become an actor? Why did you go to drama school? Why did you become a screenwriter? Why are you on this podcast? And the answer is because I, I, was, I, I was never heard as a kid. And so I overcompensated by getting into the Hollywood film business and, and communicating to millions of people, <laughs> you know, so, um, but I was still suffering, even though I started to have success and I was very driven by these emotions and feelings. Um, it, it still wasn't completing me. You know, it was like smoking weed or doing cocaine or drinking or whatever. I was it was just a drug for me, uh, a, an approval drug. And so it wasn't until I found the, you know, a really excellent therapist and um, you know, and, and even as late as a few years ago, stumbling into Jake, which was completely accidental, um, did I really start to 
put these things together and, you know, I discovered meditation and good self-care and um, I'm a much happier person now. That's incredible. And it's, it's you know, again, when, uh, you know, when we're talking about comparison, it doesn't matter if you're a soldier or, you know, you became an actor or a director or whatever it is, a writer. I mean, how many tormented writers are out there? You know, it's all this same human experience. And as soon as we're pigeonholing ourselves into these professions, we're totally negating the fact that we're human beings first. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I think that's right. And then, of course, later on, we end up with children and we're doing the same thing to them uh, as was done to us. And but the power of all this is that. You know, we have to take, I remember my, my, uh, shrink said to me one time, this was after she had heard all of my, my breakdown of all the characters in my family and everything. And the story I just told you among other things. And <clears throat> she said to me, uh, so let me ask you a question. And I said, okay. And she said, how were you complicit in all of that? And I went complicit, complicit. What the hell does complicit mean? Complicit wait a minute, you mean complicit? You mean like I had a role to play? What are you talking about? Wait a second. I was a kid. I was just minding my own business and I was victimized by all this, right? <laughs> I, it was the only time I think I've ever gotten pissed off in therapy, like really angry. And I'm like, what, explain yourself, woman. Tell me what you're, what you're asking me, you know? And she just, you know, did the old thing. Eh, time's up. <laughs> You, you should just think about it. Just, just think about it. See you next week. <laughs> see, see you next week. And, but it, but it took me about six months and it, the, it was a burning question. How was I complicit? And then I, I, it, then finally it hit me complicity. I had a choice. I had a choice and the choice was I can be heard, say what I want to say and see if the old man drops dead. See if the old man leaves the old lady, you know, like, but I get to be heard, you know, but that's not the choice that I made. I made the choice of being quiet because it was more important to me as a kid to make sure that my family didn't fall apart as if I had the power to make it fall apart. Right. <laughs> but, but don't upset your father was never going to be the thing that was going to make the family fall apart you know, which was kind of the, 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 the fool's choice that I was making. But that's really, you know, the, 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 it was a big, um, eye-opening moment just by using that word complicity because it ultimately, uh, opened up this, this portal in my, in my consciousness that said, you always have a choice. It may not be a great choice, you know, it may not be a great choice, um, but it's a choice and it's only yours to make. And, and once you make the choice, uh, I can live with the ch my choices, but I didn't even realize I had made a choice. And so I, I found that to be a, a really, uh, illuminating, amazing moment in my life where I, I realized that I could, I could take control such as you can take control of anything. Right. I mean, that, that's a little bit of an overrated idea. But um, but I could certainly take control of of how I acted and responded to things. I had that power. Um, and, you know, as my Peloton uh, instructor always says <laughs> on the Peloton, you know, <laughs> she always says, uh, you know, uh, practice. What does she say? She says, practice makes progress. It doesn't make perfect. Practice makes progress. 
I love that. Um, and so we have to practice uh, at, you know, being a better person, being a better person to ourselves. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's just a, a, a beautiful thing once you learn some of these basic skills and, and so now I'm trying to apply it to my work and, you know, see if I can, uh, elevate it or go deeper into the characters that I'm writing. Um, so that maybe it, ha that the stories have a better chance at, at reaching deeper into people and so that they walk away willing to challenge themselves. Uh, it's it's so incredible to hear that. I, there's a, a bouncer that wrote some, you know, basically self-defense books when I was a teenager. His name's Jeff Thompson. And someone mentioned him in a recent interview, and I was like, oh, God, I forgot about that bloke. So I researched him, and he, I mean, talk about metamorphosis. He is a completely different person. But again, anger was his thing. And you talked about, you know, enjoying being abused and, and the guilt and shame from that. Well, that's exactly what happened to him. And I, I mean, he never talked about that in, in his work back then, but he'd kind of hit the same point. And, and, you know, through therapy and some other outlets was now, you know, I mean, just totally engrossed in all the, the scriptures and, you know, um, philosophy and everything you get his hands on to, to, to overcome that trauma, to make, take ownership of it. And then also forgiveness was a huge thing, but yeah, anger was his thing. I mean, that's how, how he dealt with, with his trauma was he beat the shit out of people. Right. Yeah. And I, if you, if you accept your complicity, your complicity, um, then you can forgive. I mean, that is, that's the big secret prize at the end of it. That's the treasure. Because once I realized that this wasn't my mom's fault and this wasn't my dad's fault, they were just doing the best they could with the tools that they had been given. Um, this was up to me to untangle. And the second I did that, I was able to just completely let it go. Let it go. I, we have to, we have to be able to accept people's limitations um, some people just don't want to look any deeper. It, their life is, they, they feel is working for them. Hey, if that, if you're happy and you're content, far be it for me to get in and muck that up. Um, but in my case, um, you know, taking ownership of, uh, of that little thing, uh, was, um, was really life changing. And, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm happy to share those things. Beautiful. Well, it, it's interesting seeing how, uh, I know that Hollywood's a blanket statement again, but you know how how some films, some TV projects, some documentaries have become incredibly popular, and I think that really speaks again of the desire for vulnerability to smash that kind of two dimensional superhero you know facade. I mean, obviously in in the superhero world it's fine, but in you know in in regular storytelling, but you see Hacksaw Ridge, you see Band of Brothers, you see some of these powerful stories where they are very vulnerable and there's no sense to the death that happens and you know people adore those stories so um with one uh excuse me with the god i'm tripping over my words excuse me with the with the last full measure um that story how did that come onto your radar and again what drew you to that particular story well it's a 20-year story um, that began with, um, my being hired to adapt a, a book by a man who's a friend of mine now, Jack Brim, who, um, wrote a book called that others may live. And it was a peacetime pair rescue book. Um, it was sort of, um, his life as a, as a pair rescue man from, uh, joining up as a teenager and working all the way through into his forties. 
And uh, I'd been hired by by Wolfgang Peterson and Warner Brothers to adapt this book. And I said, well, look, I don't really know enough about this to be able to write about it credibly. So I need to go out and meet as many of these guys as I can. And so I went out, uh, I, I went to their selection um, school and I watched basically their equivalent of BUDS uh, that the Navy SEALs go through. And it's, it's basically forced attrition. They, they beat on you for, I think it's 12 weeks until about 80% of the guys, um, ring the bell, ring out. And, um, and, and it was fascinating. And then from there, I followed a class, um, for, for an extended period of time. I can't remember how long now, but they have regional schools all around the country from survival school to, uh, uh, para jumping school where they do halo and hey ho high altitude jumping to you know gunnery school to the, of course their their um, their paramedics um, combat paramedics so they have their big medical school um, uh, underwater dive school their rescue swimmers so they're really renaissance people and I went all over the country with these guys and over time I'd pop in and out I, I wasn't with them 100% of the time and uh Everywhere that I went that I'd meet these guys, they all wanted to know if I knew the story of William Pitsenbarger. And uh, the first person I heard it from was Jack. Um, and then it, it became kind of a joke. Wherever I'd go, they'd go, yo, dude, you're the, you're the movie guy, right? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. Have you heard this one? And they would tell me this story. And it became abundantly clear to me that this man, Pitsenbarger, William Pitsenbarger, as a 22-year-old, um, had set the bar for their community. Uh, in terms of uh, heroism and, you know, just the, the the quality of the credo, these things we do that others may live. And and it was a story about uh, a young guy who uh, volunteered to go into the middle, descend from a helicopter down a, a cable into one of the very bloodiest battles uh, of the Vietnam War, uh, Operation Abilene, um, circa 1966, where... Uh, a, a Charlie company of the first infantry division, big red one, um, was being used as the tip of the spear to go into a triple canopy jungle and engage a battalion sized force, uh, with two other companies, uh, flanking them on either side. We're talking miles apart. And the idea was once they engaged, these other two companies would swing in, kind of close the gate on the enemy and they would destroy them, basically catching them, uh, in the middle in the crossfire. And what actually happened was there were um, forests of embedded embedded bamboo uh, within the can within this triple canopy jungle. And I've seen this bamboo. I mean, it's like eight inches around. It's impossible. I don't think you could get through it with a tank. I re I really don't. And so they created what's uh, the the local nomenclature is a kill sack. And so they lured the Americans in there. And then there were about. I think it was uh, close to 700 uh, Vietnamese against about 125 Americans, and they uh, it was a it was a slaughter. You know, they they were in the trees, they were in bunkers underground, and uh, in the middle of this, while they were enduring close to 85 percent casualties, this kid Pitsenbarger um, jumps on a helicopter, uh, an Air Force helicopter, and comes in and descends into the middle of this and saved. Some say as many as 60 people before losing his life. And uh, this was just a phenomenal story. He had been overlooked for the Medal of Honor back in 1966. 
This was discovered later by the veterans who were army guys who didn't even know him, right? But they put him up for it with the advent of the internet because their wives started to uh, connect vis-a-vis email uh, only to learn that it had never happened. And so these guys found purpose uh, in getting back together. And uh, again, it's a service-oriented thing. They said, we need to, on behalf of this guy's parents, he was an only child, get this through Congress uh, to be reconsidered by Congress um, before uh, Mr. Pitsenbarger died. He was he was ill with cancer at the time. And so I'm hearing all this and I'm like, this is amazing. But I didn't think it was a movie exactly. I, I, I didn't, I, I was really just listening to it uh, more as a sort of a fanboy on the side. I, I was interested to see and hope that he would get the medal. So anyway, I'm, I'm going through this cycle and eventually I ended up at Kirtland Air Force Base for the graduation. And uh, Mr. Pitsenbarger and Alice, his wife, had been invited to come and speak at the graduation. And Mr. Pitsenbarger uh, got up and he was a very, he's a very humble man, very ill, um, and not even terribly articulate. He, he was very expository. And one of the things he said was that he lamented that he had never gotten to see his son marry and have a child of his own because only then could he, Pitts, understand how much his father, Frank, loved him. And that stopped me cold. And I flashed back to my own dinner table in the 1970s with my dad sitting there, quiet as always, eating his steak and watching the TV in the background, flashing up uh, the scorecard at the end of the news that they put up every night. It was a McNamara propaganda tool. And it would always show this lopsided victory for the Americans um, in terms of KIA's wounded and there would be two rows of them. And I just thought as a kid, you know, I grew up with this war. I was kind of born into it. So that was normal for me. And I just remember looking at that thinking, well, I guess we're kicking ass. You know, that's what it looked like to me. And my dad just kind of looked up and looked back down. He had been in Korea and just mutters under his breath that this war lasts any longer. We're going to move goddamn Canada. And I had no idea what he was talking about. And and I had never thought about that moment since until I heard Frank Pitsenbarger speak. And then I flashed immediately to my son, who was about nine years old at the time. And instantly, this is what happens, right? This is what we call nonlinear acceleration. I was having a three-dimensional epiphany. And I'm like, oh, I couldn't walk another step if I lost my son. I, I, I don't know how you do it. I, I Talk about heroic people that survived losing children. I, I don't know how you do it. And that's when I knew I had something to say, because in that moment, I realized how much my dad loved me because he had voted for Nixon. He was a Republican and he's ready to pack up this family, give up his career and move us to Canada so that something is, you know, ex- ex- existentially uh, uh, uncontrollable as a draft lottery number was going to take the thing he loved most in the world. And my dad never told me that he loved me. I mean, later he did. But as a kid, I I didn't hear I love you, sleep tight. I didn't hear that kind of thing. But there it was. It was right in front of me. And you talk about, you know, telling the wrong story. You know, I I thought my dad was a bastard sometimes, you know. Uh, But it didn't occur to me. I was That was the story I was telling myself. That's not the story that was true. What was true was 
he was ready to do whatever it took to protect me from something that he no longer believed in. And so again, you know, and so that's when I knew that, that, uh, that I had something to say with this story that wasn't just like a linear war story. So. That's absolutely incredible. And it's, it's amazing. Again, going back to, to your own childhood. I mean, I think that's it. If you ask anyone, what would be their worst case scenario in life? It would be to lose a child. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I should say, because I, you know, I never know how these things sound on the outside. I don't want the, the people to think that, uh, that this is somehow self-serving, you know, that this is all about me and blah, blah, blah. The, the, what you have to do is once you realize that you have something to say with something and you understand why, then you have to like, you know, sort of brush the dust all over it. You got to cover your tracks and you got to make it accessible so that anybody can, lock into it. And that line that Pitsenbarger, Mr. Pitsenbarger said, I put in the movie. I mean, it's, it's Chris Plummer says it, and it's a very poignant moment, but, um, but you know, you don't want to get, um, pretentious and, um, and self-serving about it when you're doing these things. Um, but it, but it is important to understand why the hell you're doing it. And, uh, and, and that was one of those moments where I went, Oh, this is why I'm actually in this business. And that's why I spent with my partner, Sidney Sherman, 20 years um, g- making sure that it got done. And it was not easy. And But we never gave up. You know, it, it, There were many incarnations of it that almost got made and then it would collapse and we'd have a great cast and it would the money would fall out. And, you know, but I'm but I'm not special in that arena either. You ask any independent filmmaker who's made a movie and they'll have a similar story. You know, these things take forever to get done. Um, but on behalf of these men who we all became friends with and really I, I fell in love with these men. You talk about initiation. I was initiated by these dogs at war personally by hearing their stories and looking into their eyes and feeling their emotion. And, uh, and, and looking at their wives who are, are like, they're freaking, you know, they're wide eyed and they pull me aside later and say, he's never talked about this, you know, and you realize, oh, and that's, what's also been the result of the movie. We've screened it for, I don't know, 75 or so military service oriented audiences around the country. And people will line up to talk to us hundreds of people deep and we wait for every single one of them. Uh, you know, this was just prior to COVID and, uh, Sydney and I and Travis and others, you know, shook every single hand and we listened to every single person because what we really wanted the, the movie to do was create, uh, the, the conditions for conversation so that, you know, you could take your dad or you could take your brother or your sister or whoever to this movie and you could all be vulnerable together. And people would say to me all the time, I had no idea that that's what my dad went through, you know? And, and I'm like, yeah, it's, it's incredible, you know? And so all of a sudden you can cut them a little slack and understand that the story you're telling about your childhood with your parent, you know, uh, isn't necessarily what's really going on. And, um, so that, that to me, as hard as the, the Hollywood film business is, and it's really hard. I mean, I'm not digging ditches for a living, um, which is to say, I'm not using my back. I think people who uh, keep our infrastructure going should, or the people who should really be paid. So I'm not complaining, but it is hard. It is frustrating. It, you have to have incredible patience. 
But when you get the opportunity to have a response like that to a film, um, you go, okay, well, I guess I can give myself an attaboy for this one because the conversation uh, for this cohort of people has begun and we had something to do with that. Yeah, no, it's absolutely amazing. Listening to you talking about the reception after reminds me of uh, Sebastian Junger, who's been on the show a couple of times now. In Tribe, he talks about the um, Veterans Town Hall and I actually tried to get it going in my in my town here. I did a presentation for our Veterans uh, Association here and then didn't hear back. So I got to revisit that. But the fact that you can just get people in into a room, whether it's on screen or whether it's in person and just listen. And give these men and women a chance to tell some stories. You know, it might not be war stories, whatever it is. It might be good, it might be bad, it might be pro-war, anti-war, but just f- listen to, just like you were saying, to be heard. And then for the rest of the community it didn't serve, have an opportunity to actually hear what these men and women, especially the Vietnam era that were plucked from their communities, what they did for this country. Sebastian is one of my favorite writers, and I, I hope to meet him someday. Um, I've read Tribe probably five times, um, and uh, it's one of the books that's on the Saw reading list for sure. I mean, it's so obvious, right? But um, but the fact that that this guy who's essentially a, a, a journalist, uh, you know, sort of a first-person narrative writer is the guy that came up with that and, and put that all together is remarkable to me. Um but, uh, but you know, the end of the movie, uh, it, without giving away the spoilers, uh, it really is that town hall. Um, and, and this is the thing that I, I would suggest, uh, because it's not just about, so you can get caught up. You got to be careful because if you're not trained and not prepared to really take on what you're asking of someone, like when you ask them to, to crack open, you don't know what you're going to get. Right. And so we do it in cohorts of 12 people at, at a time with with uh, healthcare professionals and, you know, a, a, a team psychologist. And just in case it runs off the rails, you know, we're, we're ready. Um, but the question to ask is. Not what is the story? The, the question is the deepest question, I think, is what happened to you? What happened to you? I'm here to catch you. It already happened. It's in the past, but it's driving your present. So tell me what happened to you. And, and that's that moment of vulnerability. If they're really willing to tell you and not embellish and not, uh, and, and, and leave the shame and all that, and just bring it with whatever emotion comes with it. Now you have a chance at, at healing, you know, um, but sometimes you know, we ask the wrong question, <laughs> you know, and What's it, wrong it's really with you? important. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. What's wrong with you? Really? Wow. Thanks a lot. You know, instead of what happened to you, because what happened to you takes, you know, it's, it's goodwill hunting, right? It's not your fault. Will it's, you understand that it's not your fault. And, and it's really impossible for us to, to feel like it's not our fault unless somebody walks us through that labyrinth. Um, because it, we, we're so, you know, my shrink, uh, always talks about the neuro, the neuropathways in the brain and they've proven, you know, w- with brain scans and things that you can actually change these pathways. And the, the, I, the way I understand them is there's sort of, uh, electronic shortcuts through the brain where the impulses go through. And if they're used to a certain, um, 
a certain mandate, a, a, a certain conditioning. They grow a certain way and they reinforce the feelings that are associated with the event. And, and, and through meditation and all kinds of things, um, you can change those neuropathways and start to rearrange the way you think and feel about things. And it starts with that question um, because you've got to untangle that story that you're telling um, that isn't necessarily serving you well. Absolutely. And I think that's a big thing when you look at the world of addiction too. It's a topic that I, I address a lot. You know, I think uh, I would love to see, you know, drug prohibition ended in this country. And I've, I've seen it firsthand in Portugal and even interviewed the man that spearheaded that. But that's the same issue. We look at that as there's something wrong with these people versus what void are you filling with, you know, insert drug here? What happened to you? Right. Well, of course, it, it, because what it comes with is, uh, is an equal, if not more potent dose of shame. You're a, you're a doper. Like what's wrong with you? Right. There it is. There's that, there's that shame. Uh, instead of asking what happened to you, you know, and, uh, and, and now, now we can start to address, well, why are you using this medicine? You know, you're, you're, you're medicating yourself. Why is that? What, what are you trying not to feel? How are you numbing? And you can numb with anything, right? You can numb with adrenaline. You can numb with drugs. You can not numb with pornography, sex, anything, you know, and, and all of these things, you know, can be handled, um, you know, in reasonable doses, I suppose. Um, but you got to get your, you got to get yourself straightened out first, um, or, or otherwise you're using these things, um, in a destructive way. And uh, we, I agree with you. I, I, I think, I, I think that um, it, it, there are probably a lot of uh, our sort of um, societal. I don't even know what I'm trying to say. Except that I think somebody benefits from from uh, drug addiction and and so forth. Whether it's our, you know, I, I, if our medical, you know, our pharmaceuticals. I, I'm not sure what it is, but uh, but I agree with you. If we could just like back off of the shaming part of it and make it, uh, so that it's not criminal to try to reduce your pain. We might have a, a, a real chance at healing some of that pain. Absolutely. Well, going back to, you know, the, the real men in this story, um, again, not, not kind of trying to, trying to tell the whole story on this podcast by any means, but you know, you, you highlight now this, this different men that have have dealt with it in different ways. You know, you've got some that are living out in the middle of nowhere. You've got some, you know, that are manifesting in, in a multitude of ways from what they saw and what they did. With the real men, when you met them, did any of you, any of them tell a story of, or their, or their partners tell a story of doing poorly, but when they were given this mission again, when they were actually trying to get him the, the Medal of Honor, that that in itself, like you said, was was a an opportunity to give back was was a mission again, and that became healing for them. Well, I think it did uh, from an observational point of view. I you know I got to watch it happen because it um, Sydney and I, you know, who, Sydney was on this thing with me from the beginning, and I should say that you know it takes a a, a city to make a movie, and there were so many people involved in, in the the successful outcome of this movie, but. Um, but having, you know, seen these guys, some of whom were very um, tepid about 
you know, getting involved in the beginning. Um, it was only when, you know, we, we, we served up, listen, if we make this movie, maybe it would help move the needle a little bit. Uh, and we kind of believed that in the beginning. It, it never, we thought we were going to be able to, you know, turn this into a movie very quickly and it was sold relatively quickly. But, um, but you know, it, it you're, you're always a, a, a victim of the tides in, in Hollywood. And, um, and uh, for whatever reason, it, it took many, many years to get this made. But over that time, I got to see these men because, it, again, like I found out about the story in 1999 and by 2000, uh, the, the medal had been awarded. So it was sort of already done that that aspect of it. And that really at the time, it felt like it was taking forever. But it really probably only took four or five years for that whole thing to happen. But it took 20 years to make this movie with uh, with Sydney and I, you know, trying to get these guys to hang with us because we had life rights, you know, contracts that we had to do every year. And it was a mess, you know, to hold it all together. And uh, but over that time um, and especially when when you got to see them see themselves, you know, 40 feet tall um, with Mrs. Pitsenbarger in the audience and them surrounding her Um Wow. I mean, you talk about um, relief. There was relief in that room. We, we had our original premiere at the Air Force Museum in Dayton, Ohio, uh, on a on a uh, gigantic, you know, w- one of the big, big, big screens. Um, uh, and it was just it was amazing to watch the face. I didn't watch the movie. I watched the audience. And uh, and I was terrified, you know, because, you know, you don't know. how something's going to land until you see it land. And that was the, that was the virgin audience for that film. And afterwards, I mean, it it was, uh, these guys were just, you know, tears running down their faces and, um, and they were so grateful and they had been in the movie too. You know, we, we, we put them all in the last scene. So, uh, in a way it was like three times it was, they were at the original medal of honor ceremony, which took place in that very building. Then we recreated it and they went through it again and then they got to see it and, uh, dramatized. And, um, yeah, it it was, uh, a, a true, uh, privilege to be able to honor them and honor their story and their families. Incredible. But they weren't the only ones you made cry. Me and my wife cried like five-year-old girls too. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, Diane Ladd says if if you meet somebody who doesn't cry in this movie, don't trust them. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Well, speaking of uh, you know famous figures in in the movies, I was very very fortunate to work with Captain Die, Captain Dale Die, um, in Japan when I was doing stunts out there. And he actually came on the show as well, which is another you know, incredible story. Hearing his uh, his journey through Hollywood as a as a member of the military, um, was he? And he was in he was in this movie. Was he the military advisor on this? He was. He he was my military advisor. And um, you know, when I first met Dale, I was you know I was a little terrified too because I'd seen all the. Uh, the behind the scenes stuff on saving private Ryan where, uh, you know, Tom and, uh, Tom Hanks and, uh, the rest of them, you know, came out of his boot camp and they were, you know, wide eyed going, yeah, that was something. We're not doing that again (laughs) (laughs) because he's, he's just tough, you know? Um, but actually as all tough guys, he's actually really a, 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 just a pussycat and, uh, he just really cares. Um, and, and he's a man who's been through some 
you know, traumatic events himself. I mean, he's a man of war and, um, but he came back, uh, and, and had that, you know, that light bulb go off and say, uh, I want to change the, the, the credibility, the level of credibility in movies in Hollywood. And nobody had ever done that. He's the guy that basically created that idea. And of course, um, Oliver Stone embraced him, uh, to do that for him in platoon which I auditioned for back in the day. That's how old I am. Oh, really? And yeah, I, I auditioned for Oliver. Yeah. And I was doing a, a, a production of the play Streamers, which is about a bunch of Vietnam guys in boot camp. And so I had the haircut and everything. I was ready to go. I knew I was going to book that one. And uh, I didn't. But somebody I went to college with did. Um, so that, that was kind of cool. One of my, uh, one of my uh, college um, guys uh, got to do that um but uh but there was dale in the middle of that and he plays of course uh, a small role in the movie and he's fantastic and yeah he's just a real deal and and he really helped me with the screenwriting too because i would go in with it there's all kinds of comms you know communications in it and how the heck do you learn that unless you have somebody like him who can tell you exactly not only what the what the radio jargon would be, but he would explain to you what you're actually asking for. Um, I'm a pilot uh, as a hobby, and I it drives me crazy in movies when they don't get the aviation right, because it's so easy to get it right, you know? And so whenever I do a movie, I, I really make it my business to find somebody who's an authority on it and make sure that we don't screw it up, because even in this movie, in fact, I'll tell you just a quick story that really has to do with Dale, because I think he's the one that flagged it. We had a guy walking into the Pentagon in the opening scene of the movie, and the guy's got bars and epaulets. And what that means is he's an enlisted guy, and he's also an officer at the same time. Okay, that was a goof by the wardrobe department, and I didn't catch it. And I didn't catch it until deep into the process of editing the film, and I think it was Dale that went, uh, yo. <laughs> That's wrong. And the, the studio uh, wouldn't pay to fix it. They're like, ah, nobody cares. But we cared. And so Sydney and I spent, I think we spent like 20 grand of our own money to get it removed, to get the stripes removed. Because the guy's moving, you know, it's not easy. So they had to go in frame by frame and take it out. Uh, and there were, there were one or two things like that um, where, you know, I was so grateful for Dale because you don't want the military audience yanked out of the movie because they're like going, these guys didn't care enough to even get these simple details right. And uniforms are always a big one. Um, and they're kind of personalized because every, you know, little cohort, you know, they've got their own patches and their own thing and they're all personalized to some extent. And you really want to get that stuff right. And so, uh, Dale was just, uh, you know, great that way. And he's also a mentor, you know, he's, he, it's really like having, uh, you know, your dad with you, uh, you know, who's that stern guy overlooking your shoulder, but really proud of you at the end. And, uh, yeah. Beautiful. Well, I know he was, uh, when, when he came on before, he was working to try and raise the funds for no better place to die. Is that, um, move forward at all? Do you know? I don't know. Uh, I know that uh, Travis Wade was working on that with him. And uh, I know that they had made progress. Um, I know Tom Hanks got involved. So uh, I would think it would it, it would be doing moving down the tracks if uh, Tom's involved. 
Beautiful. Hope so. So I, mean, I want to try and get uh, get Dale back on the show. I mean, he's, he's an, just an incredible person. Um, well, one more area before we go to some closing questions, but I think it's a very important kind of perspective that Travis touched on a bit, and I know you and I spoke of last time on the phone, is that many of the the cast who were playing you know, the older soldiers now, you know, in the in the the, the uh, beginning of the millennia, um, were portrayed by men who hadn't served. Who you know managed to I wouldn't say avoid the, the the draft, but but weren't weren't taken in the draft. So and it was a very interesting perspective that you were talking about as far as their their kind of feeling of guilt. We've talked about guilt a lot today of of not being there, of not going out and serving their country, and now and now almost getting an opportunity to amend that slightly by portraying these these soldiers. So tell me about that. Well, without generalizing. Um, you know, I, I think individually, um, each one of these actors and, you know, we're talking about William Hurt, Ed Harris, uh, Samuel L. Jackson, um, John Savage, you know, who comes from the tradition of the deer hunter, um, you know, it was already sort of iconic in, in this um, in this playing field. Um, these are all, um, you know, men who lived through that time. And for whatever reasons, you know, they they serve, you know, medical reasons, who knows what the reasons were. Um, but I think all of them, when I approach them and, and many other people of that generation, um, which is a bit older than I am, um, they all uh, wanted to be part of the movie from the beginning. As I mentioned earlier, there were lots of iterations of the film over the years. And we never had a problem attracting those actors because, I, and I, nobody ever said this to me, but I, it, it's really observational, but I, I got the sense that each one of them did have a, a Vietnam story in them somewhere that had to do with somebody who went and came back and was never the same, somebody who went and was killed and didn't come back. Um, they all had memories of that time like that. And some of them were very politically active and against the war and all that. I mean, Peter Fonda certainly comes to mind. And, um, but you know, they all came hard charging into this because I think they wanted to, uh, honor and pay respect to their friends that, that either volunteered to go or were forced to go. And, um, you know, it's a love letter to those people and, um, and I'll forever be grateful to them. And they completely embraced, um, the, the actual mud soldiers and pararescuemen who were involved in the real story. Um, you know, going out at night, um, William took, uh, at least two of our guys out one night and I, I, I tapped out at about two in the morning and I, I think the sun was coming up you know, before they, they went to bed, you know, and, um, Travis was involved in that little melee as well. And, uh, so it, it was just fantastic to see how human, um, public people can be and real. They can be with the realest salt of the earth people you'll ever meet. And, um, so it, again, that was kind of cool to be able to, you know, create the conditions for that because, you know, most people who are out in the real world, you know, they see these people their whole lives. And when somebody like that walks into a room, it's it's kind of almost shocking, you know, when you meet a celebrity um, and you don't know what to say or whatever. And these guys just made it so easy um, for these men and their wives and kids to, you know, engage them and interact. It was, it was really cool. I'm, I'm really I'm really proud of all of them for um, their willingness to uh, be accessible. 
Beautiful. Well, I mean, it was such a great movie. Like I said, it, it certainly drew emotions out of my family. And, you know, it was a, an incredible story. And, and I wish there was more. I hope there are more films like this. I hope Dale gets to make his because I think there's a yearning for a true stories. Because, I mean, my God, are there some incredible true stories out there. I, I get to hear them on this and it's just absolutely mind blowing what some of these men and women have done. But I think that it would also help reframe gratitude, you know, um, trauma, some of these areas that, that people have pushed down, that have kind of steered away from. And some of these productions like yours, I think, really embody that, again, that human spirit, that human element, the, 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 the true service, the true loss that some of these families have, whether it's physically their, their, their loved ones were killed or whether it was mentally they came back different. But, um, I well, thought it Josh, was a beautiful. Josh's film too, right? I mean, that's another amazing, you know, film about trauma and, and people serving their community and, and, and people are lost. And, um, you know, uh, I, I listened to that podcast actually, and I was fascinated about the fact that, uh, that he actually is a firefighter himself and, um, just incredible, you know, like, wow, that there, there's a guy. And I actually wrote for him back in the days on, uh, I was a writer on uh, young writers a thousand years ago. And, um, it, it was, uh, it was just so nice to hear that. And so I really think that this is in our community. Um, I, I think, um, you know, sometimes, you know, Hollywood, not sometimes, a lot of the time Hollywood gets a, a bum rap. Um, but we're all just people. Um, we're, we're all trying to do the right thing. Um, you know, whether our, our views, you know, mix with the rest of the world all the time, you know, or, or even amongst ourselves is sort of irrelevant. I, I think most of the people that I meet along the way are just trying to, you know, be righteous people and do the right thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's the same with law enforcement and everything else that, you know, every other profession that gets dragged through the coals is, yeah, I mean, there's some bad apples in all our professions. You know, fire service is no different. But yeah, again, when we see each other as humans who happen to be actors, happen to be firefighters, doctors, you know, whatever it is, then you see the commonalities and not the differences. And you celebrate the differences then. Yeah. And I think it does come back to that same thing that I was talking about ad nauseum earlier, which is, you know, how are you complicit in, in, in our, our relationship and perceptions uh, with the people that serve the rest of us. You know, how are we all part of the, you, you know, the, the, the big debate about law enforcement? You know, uh, because you got, you got to look in the mirror. I have to look in the mirror and say, okay, you know, my grandfather was a cop. He was not a perfect person, you know, and, and policing was very different then, you know. So I, I have to embrace that. You know, he wasn't a hero. He was a guy trying to get through it. You know, and I'm sure a lot of it wasn't pretty, you know, but we're all part of it. You know, it's not us and them. It's us and us. And um, until we're we're I, I'm so, you know, tired of the division in this country um, where people are just lining up on opposite sides. And I don't even think we're seeing what what the real issues are. I think we're being, um, you know, sort of uh, uh, duped and it's a game of sleight of hand, you know, we need to look inside, you know, not outside. And, um, you know, cause you can do it within the walls of your own home. You know, how are you raising your children? How are you raising them to think? How are you raising them to, um, consider other people? 
you know, and um, you, you don't have to go out and, ch- you know, like change the world. You don't have to go out and score a touchdown or win an Academy Award or whatever. You know, th- these are like crazy metrics that we that we use to, in a, in a weird way, feel bad about ourselves. You know, um, you just got to go out every day and do the best that you can do and be, you know, authentic about it and 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 take people as they come. You know, I, I don't love people or hate people because of their politics. You know, and and yet it seems like somebody's benefiting from the conflict, you know, whether it's the media or whatever. And uh, I just I, I choose to not play that game. I, I, I've stepped back on the sideline. <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree completely. I think most of the people on the playing field are scratching their head wondering what's going on anyway. It's just the two extremes that are like lobbing arrows at each other. But again, even that, what happened to you? Why are you so fucking angry about something that doesn't even make any sense? And if those people, again, ask that themselves, they'll realize that that's a manifestation of whatever's going on within them. Exactly. And and by the way, you know, you're, you, I always say this, you know, it's kind of I have a friend, a buddy of mine uh, who lives in South Carolina, and he's a diehard Celtics fan. And I'm a diehard um, uh, a Lakers fan. And there, a couple of years ago, you know, the, the Celtics and the Lakers went back and forth, that great rivalry, you know, and uh, I think Celtics won one year and the Lakers won one year and we were just at each other and having a good old time, you know, just abusing each other. And, um, and, and I started to look at politics and one day I woke up and I went, you know, does it really matter whether your millionaires beat my millionaires? <laughs> you know, like, well, like, well, like, well, I mean, this is entertainment. Like, why are we getting emotionally wrapped up about who wins a basketball game as entertaining as it is? And, uh, you know, I, I love to watch these just incredible athletes perform. But at the end of the day, they don't even know who I am. You know? So why am I getting all worked up? And I, I think that politics is is much the same way. I know people who for the last four months have been glued to their respective television channels you know, just watching it and the tweets that are flying and the this and the that and people are getting further and further and further apart. And I'm just like, I turned it off. Like, yeah, I turn it on once a day. I look one eye, you know, I get my little news feed in the morning and I, I read it in like two minutes and I'm done for the day. Time to go back to work. You know, who needs something? How are you today? <laughs> you know, can I carry those in for you? <laughs> That's kind of the way I do it, you know, and I, and I, I feel, uh, you know, much less stressed. So, yeah, no, I, I agree. And even with the the watching sport, what I realize is there's a lot of people that watch sport but never play the sport they love anymore. They stop playing, and it's the same with politics to me. Now you're you're cheering on a team of strangers and not actually going out in your community and doing good yourself. You know, so you got to stop being the observer and start being you know the player again. Yeah, it's that it's that thing. You know, uh, think globally, act locally. You know, and I. Uh, I mean, it, it, even in my, my little street here, we have a, a stream that kind of runs through it. It's dry this time of year, but, uh, but garbage accumulates in it and it eventually will blow or wash out to the ocean. And so every once in a while, I'll go down with a couple of hefty trash bags and I'll just walk up the creek and I'll pick up, you know, tin cans and styrofoam and whatever. It takes me 15 minutes. And I just think if everybody did that everywhere, the dolphins wouldn't be choking on beer you know, tabs, you know, it's like, all you have to do is a little, you don't have to do a lot, just do what you can. Um, but don't stand on the sidelines, uh, you know, hurling epithets at, at people that if you met, you know, in a bar, uh, you would probably like, 
you know? Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so I, I don't know what unification looks like these days, but I, I think it happens one person at a time. And, um, and that's why, again, you know, when, when you get the, the privilege of making a film and people react to it and you have the opportunity to interface with them, that was the whole point, right? You know, it, it's like you make a movie and everything gets judged by the box office or by, or, or by a handful of critics, you know, lots of critics didn't like this movie, you know, but the audience number is like on Rotten Tomatoes is like a 96. So I, I have to go, well, you know, which, which story am I going to choose? Am I going to choose the pretentious snotty critics? Like if they had told me that that's the way that they were going to rate this movie when I started, um, would I have not made the movie? You know, or am I going to listen to the people who actually went and paid their money and reacted? That's who I made the movie for, it turns out, you know. And so, uh, you know, money and the rest of it. I mean, we need to make money uh, because it is a business. But in terms of the art of it, um, you know, you just can't get wrapped up in in, um, uh, you know, using these metrics to judge your work or your intention, because I know, I know what my intentions are, whether I'm successful at it completely, you know, there's no perfect movie. There's no perfect anything. Um, I just have to cut myself a break. Um, and, you know, not beat myself up and not tell that story. You know, I just got to get up and I have to meet those people one-on-one. -on -one. And when I meet them, who, who knows what their political views are? Who knows? All I know is they were moved by this story and maybe their life just got a little bit better. Absolutely. And that's why I'm doing it. So beautiful. That's a great point to uh, transition to some closing questions then. So I know obviously, you know, you do a lot of screenwriting as well. Is there a book that you love to recommend to people? It can be related to what we've discussed today. It can be one of the ones you mentioned already, or it can be something completely unrelated. Uh, oh boy, that's a big, uh, that's a big one. I have to look at my bookshelf here. Um, I would say, um, one of the, uh, the books that is a good writing book, but it's not about screenwriting is if you want to write and it's by a turn of the century female author. And the name is going to escape me. Her name is going to escape me, but it's a book I go back to. Uh, and the reason I can't look at my bookshelf and tell you her name is because I give the book away all the time. <laughs> um, so, uh, so that is a good one, but I would say you know, overall advice more is, and it was given to me and I, it, I think it served me well is that writers read and writers write. And I try to read every day and I, and, and completely unrelated things. I just read, I like to look at, uh, you know, narrative. I, I like to see how people lay things out and tell stories. And, um, and then the, the other thing is that writers write and I tend to write every single day of the week. I, I, if I put it down and stop, uh, it, it takes too much, you know, you lose the inertia. And so when I'm in, involved in a project, um, I, I try to do it every day. And sometimes when I'm just developing, I'll still get down and I'll do what I call exercise work and, and write prose. I'll ask myself a question. I have a series of questions that I ask myself. And, um, and the thing is you fatigue yourself when you write. You, at first, it's really hard, and then you get stream of consciousness going, and then you just keep writing and writing and writing and writing and writing, and then you stop at some point, and then you go back and put it down for a day or two, and then go back and read it, and you can start to see patterns, and you go, oh, I'm actually writing about this conflict that I had with 
you know, someone significant in my life, maybe. Um, because we're, we're, I don't, I'm going to just going to divert for one second. There was an amazing 60 minute segment on Ken Burns and Ken Burns, the, 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 you know, world renowned documentarian is talking about his work and deep into the interview. Um, he talked about how his father-in-law said to him, do you understand what it is that you do? And Ken's like, well, I make documentaries. He says, no, you raise the dead. You raise the dead. That's what you do. You reanimate Abraham Lincoln or Jackie Robinson or whoever it is, and you give them life again so that we can all experience them. And he said, but you know what I think you're really trying to do? Ken Burns' trauma was his mother died of cancer when he was a boy. He says, I really think what you're trying to do is raise your mother. And Ken Burns, it was that he, the word he uses is it was his crucible. And he went, he called his brother and it turns out that his mother had been buried in a pauper's grave with no uh, demarcation. And so they went there and, and in this place where many people were buried, they put a stone down for her. And he said, it changed me as a filmmaker. And so I'm always looking for the crucible in myself or the crucible in a character. And often they're the same thing. Um, so that I then understand what it is I'm writing about. You know, it's, it's what, uh, what Aristotle called, um, uh, anagnorisis and peripatia. You know, it's, uh, I, I, I'm trying to help a kid who sees dead people, uh, anagnorisis, peripatia. Oh, I'm dead. Right. It's that discovery, that epiphany. And, um, and, and all, you have to be thoughtful about that when you're storytelling. And so uh, I, I think that that, you know, uh, when you look at mythology, like through Joseph Campbell, I mean, of course, Heroes of a Thousand Faces is another book that every writer should read. Um, he talks about that as well. So beautiful. That is by far the most pro profound answer I've ever had to that question. <laughs> that was amazing. Ken Burns. I mean, my God, talk about, you know, the, the epiphany he must have had after hearing that. Oh my God. Yeah. And, and had, and had lived, you know, two thirds of his life before somebody else made that observation for him. You know, wow. Incredible. I, I mean, I literally, I called everybody I knew, you know, I started sending the link everywhere. I'm like, this is what I'm in search of all the time. And, and he put it so beautifully. I'm looking for the crucible, you know, so beautiful. Well, I'm going to put that link on on the web page for this episode too for everyone listening because I mean that's something I'm going to have to watch now. Um, are there any other movies and or documentaries that you love to recommend? Oh, so many. Um, well, I'll tell you about uh, two movies that changed my life. Uh, I love so many movies that, that that's like a, a, impossible to answer. But um, I love I, I went uh, as a young man when back when I was an actor uh, after a fatiguing summer, I went and I saw a double bill of Days of Heaven uh, with uh, The Duelist, which was Ridley Scott's first film. And these are two of the most cinematic, visually stunning movies uh, that I had ever seen. And they changed my life. I, I, I walked out uh, so transformed. I, I had, I, you know, four or five hours went by and I didn't even know what had happened to me. And uh, I knew nothing about them going in. I just needed to go see a movie. And that's what was playing. And uh, little did I know that uh, only a few years later, Ridley Scott would direct my first 
film, my first big film. And um, they're just master classes. Uh, so uh, I, I recommend those two movies. And um, documentaries, hmm, uh, I sure like Don't Look Back, Bob Dylan, um, you know, from the 60s. Uh, Penny Baker, I think, uh, made that one. Um, uh, geez. Uh, well, I'll tell you, there's, I'll, I'll recommend another one that I, I had a very small part in along with uh, Sidney Sherman. And that is, uh, there's a movie called Freedom to Marry, uh, written and directed by Eddie Rosenstein, which is uh, all about the um, one of the Supreme Court cases um, to uh, uh, get gay marriage passed. And it is a fascinating movie, not only about that subject, whether you're interested in that subject or not, but it's, it's truly about how to uh, make social change peacefully. And it took uh, a single attorney who had the vision for that uh, about 20 years to get it before the Supreme Court. So that's another uh, terrific film. Beautiful. Well, I will add that to my list. Thank you. And it's funny you mentioned the duelist as a, a stuntman uh, doing swordplay. That is, you know, the Princess Bride and the duelist are pretty much the two go-tos for, uh, you know, incredible sword choreography. And let's not forget Rob Roy. Oh, yes. Another one. But not Fighting. Robin Hood. Fight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, Rob Roy, uh, I, I was never so tired after watching two actors, uh, sword fight is that last sword fight in that movie. I love that one too. Yeah, actually. Well, that's a good segue because one of the people I'd love to get on one day is uh, Liam Neeson. I mean, talk about another man with a powerful story. Um, is, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Boy, you didn't let me prepare for this, uh, uh, James. Uh, I, I apologize. Well, let's see. I don't think I asked. Uh, no, no, uh, not Josh at all. No, uh, no. So, someone who um, could sort of relate uh, the, these kind of things to a military firefighting service-oriented group. Um, you know, I usually get asked this question about about filmmakers, um, and you've already had Jake Clark on. Uh, because he would be probably the first person that I, I recommend, I would recommend. Um, I'll tell you somebody else who's amazing. And I think you would, you would relate to him is, uh, Matt Fiorenza. Have you, do you, do you know Matty? So I worked with Matty in Anaheim and I just did an interview with him. Um, it will be out by the time I release this, but, uh, I sat down with him and then, um, a San Diego fireman that was just about to go to SOAR. And so we're going to, I'm going to finish recording his experiences and then put that all together. So yeah, Matt is just coming on. Yeah, I think he's uh, he's the real deal. He's he's had a, you know, uh, he's gone through a lot of stuff, and uh, and I I think that he when I think it, when I think of Maddie, I think of the word gratitude. Um, but I will continue to think about this for you, and uh, I I will nominate somebody for you. Beautiful. Well, thank you. All right. Well, then the next quest. Next, excuse me. The next question. You mentioned flying, so this might be one of your answers. But what do you do to decompress? Well, apart from family things, um, I would say I do my happy place is my, my mother's house, uh, in West Hampton on Long Island and, uh, she lives on the water and I grew up on that dock and, um, I love to spend time throwing a crab line in the water and just sort of sitting there and listening to the, the eel grass and the wind. Um, I fly airplanes. Um, I would say that's my mad passion 
And the other thing that I do is uh, I'm a I'm a dedicated amateur guitar player, and I I'm uh, I'm sort of a, a guitar nerd. I I love everything guitars. I I play them. I I like to collect them. I I love luthiers, and I lo- love woodworking and all of that. So um, I I love music. That's what I started out to do, and got uh, sidetracked by by drama. Very cool. All right. Well, then for the people listening, um, if they want to reach out to you, where can they find you online? And then where are the best places to find the film now? Uh, well, the film can be found pretty much anywhere. Uh, all, all the big uh, screening services. Um, uh, you can always find it on Amazon. It's streaming now on Hulu. Um, uh, you can get it on iTunes. Um, yeah. And you can, of course, buy the the Blu-ray uh, on Amazon uh, or, or I guess they're doing a, a regular DVD. Um, and those are kind of fun because there's a lot of great behind the scenes uh, uh, pieces on those. So, uh, yeah, just uh, Google the last full measure, you know, rent or buy. And I'm sure there's endless uh, ways to do that. And what was the other question? Um, if you want to find more about you online or if you have any oh. social media. Yeah, yeah. So, uh I do have social media, but I'm not, I'm not super active, uh, on, I, I'm, I have an Instagram account. It's Todd Robinson with the, 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 the blue check. Um, they're, they're more than one of me, but mine's got the blue check and, uh, I'm, you can find me at toddrobinsonfilm.com. Uh, that's my website. And, uh, it's more of a professional website, but you can see there's lots of pictures from various movies and things there. So if anybody wants to get me, there's an email address there too. Brilliant. All right. Well, Todd, I just want to say thank you. I mean, that's what I love about these long form conversations. I mean, we've gone all over the place from, you know, turn of the century serial killers to, to trauma to, I mean, so many different areas, but the, the common denominator with you and so many other people was, is the vulnerability and the courage to, you know, to go in those different places and not fit some two dimensional mold that we've all been, you know, presenting for a long time. So thank you so much for telling your incredible story today. Thank you, James. Anytime. Anytime. 